0: Got a trivia question for you. In the second decade of the twenty-first century, who was the highest-grossing actor in Hollywood? Highest-grossing actor in Hollywood, second decade of the twenty-first century. Anybody know? The answer, yeah. The answer is Dwayne the Rock Johnson. If you want to build your studio profitably, you built it on the rock. Um, <laughs> look at this. Look at this. Before 2017, the most any actor had ever made in one year was $68 million. But from June 17, they count it June to June. June 17 to June 18, Dwayne Johnson earned $124 million, and most of that was in profit sharing. You know, they'll sign contracts where if the movie makes money, then, then they get a certain cut of the of the prophet all three of his movies released during that year period made money and here's why that's such a big deal this was during a period when Hollywood was struggling attendance was particularly down in fact that year 2017 to 2018 saw the lowest movie attendance uh, of the entire century it was the lowest since the recession year of 1992-93 others win awards but their studios are closing down they're facing mergers. The, the ones that built on the rock of Dwayne Johnson, they're still standing after the recession. <laughs> Here's just one very sad example. An executive at Viacom a number of years ago was offered the opportunity to sign the rock, Dwayne Johnson, to an exclusive contract, kind of an old-school Hollywood exclusive contract, and he said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. What a missed opportunity. In a much more meaningful way, you and I need to build our lives to be profitable. And that means we grab the opportunity to build on the rock, not Dwayne Johnson. We build on the real rock, the rock of Jesus. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 7, first book in your New Testament. Go to chapter 7, let's read verses 24 through 27. 24 to 27. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man, says Jesus, who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was great. As we headline in your notes, open the bulletin you got when you came in, as we put in there, Jesus' words are the rock. Jesus takes the sum of his ethic through the Sermon on the Mount, and he declares that those who build on it are firmly established. Now, of course, this applies to non-Christians, non-believers who are seeking justification, but you need to know this is actually a sanctification passage, meaning, meaning it's a, like all the Sermon on the Mount, it's about how Christians grow up in Christ, how we grow in holiness. Jesus is calling believers to... To follow his ethic by building their lives on his words. Truly, that is building to last. This year, our church's annual vision is what, everybody? What's our church's annual vision? Build to last, right? And that requires founding one's life on the rock of Jesus' ethic on the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, that brings up a great question, one that you were asking in your Dwayne Johnson uh, guerrilla trainer from the movie Rampage. Uh, ooh, aka, uh, mookie papa, right? which we all know translates as, what does that mean? What does it mean to build on the rock? Great question. Thank you for asking, Dwayne. The answers are actually laid out in the verbs that Jesus just spoke, the verbs of this speech. Look at the first one. First verb we see there is listen. Jesus says, hear these words of mine. You must know and study and really listen to Jesus, but listening can be hard, especially for people in certain cultures. You see, many world cultures have been built on seeing. They've been built on the visual. For example, the, the three main cultures that surrounded Jesus' audience when he was giving this sermon, for them, seeing was the most important form of communication and discovery. The the three main cultures around them were the Eastern Gnostics, the Greeks, and the Romans. And all of them made visual monuments. They they were absorbed with trying to find truth visually. That's why they made statues of gods. That's why they built shrines. That's why the Greeks were the first people to ever make up the phrase, seeing is believing, right? But Jesus' Jewish disciples, they thought very differently than that. When Jesus says hear, he's using an idea that is very different from seeing. It's about listening to truth. The term Matthew records is "akuo." "Akuo" it's 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 more than merely noticing a sound. "Akuo" means to listen, actively listen. Um, we're blessed with quite a few educators in this church. In fact, you can't throw a brick around here without killing an educator. Um, don't. Um, <laughs> But if you would ask one of them, one of the many, many teachers that are in this congregation, if you would ask them, they could give you, better than, than I could right now, a really eloquent description of the difference between somebody, a student who just hears, and one who is actively listening. The Jews were way ahead of us in understanding active listening. Almost two thousand years after Jesus spoke akuo, we finally come up with a fairly decent definition in English, and it takes a whole slide. Pay attention. Here's how you actively listen: akuo. Pay attention. Look at who's talking. Do not talk yourself. That's hard. Ask questions. Follow directions. And visualize what is being said. That's a cool, and that kind of active listening is totally different than sight. Think, think about this now. When you try to find the truth by seeing, you are the center of everything, right? You, you determine the angle and the tone of the approach. You are the hunter who is seeking after truth, not so when you're listening. When truth is heard, you're just responding. Someone else must speak. You're the responder, Right? You, you don't determine truth, you are called to it. You're not the hunter, you're the called. This is really tough for us because modern Western cultures have moved away from the seeing approach. We, we are much more like the Romans than we are like the first Christians who were Jewish. If we're gonna build our lives on the real rock, we must yield to him. And that means we must recognize that truth is handed to us by God. It is not something that we craft for ourselves. A generation back, the great scholar Geoffrey Bromley summarized the idea this way. Look what Dr. Bromley wrote. He said, this prevalence of hearing, talking about it in the Sermon on the Mount, points to an essential feature of biblical religion. It is a religion of the word because it's a religion of action, of obedience to the word. The prophet is the bearer of the word of Yahweh which demands obedience and fulfillment. Man is not righteous as he seeks to apprehend or perceive God by way of thought and vision, but as he hears the commands of God and studies to obey it. Close quote. Not long ago, Randall Satchel, one of our elders, summarized biblical hearing in a prayer that he led during one of our elders' devotions. I I thought it so moving, I put it in your notes. Randall prayed this for us. Your word, O Lord, is the constant dominant voice speaking to me. It is training, guiding, arguing, persuading me to think habitually in a specific way, producing by your spirit behavioral fruit filled with holiness, justice, mercy, grace, wisdom, and peace in every situation. Yes, there are other voices, but in comparison to your voice, they're insignificant in time, volume, import, and impact. As Psalm 119 says, Your words, O Lord, they are my counselors. Father in heaven, increase my delight in your word until that statement is true for me close quote that's a cool now let me ask you do you want that to be true of you as well randall really does do you want that to be true of you yes or no all right then stop and pray with me pray bow your heads please let's pray your word O lord is the constant dominant voice speaking to us It is training, guiding, arguing, persuading us to think habitually in a specific way, producing by your spirit behavioral fruit filled with holiness, justice, mercy, grace, wisdom, and peace in every situation. Yes, there are other voices. But in comparison to your voice, they are insignificant in time, volume, import, and impact. As Psalm 119 says, your words, O Lord, they are my counselors, Father in heaven increase our delight in your word until that statement is true for us. All God's people said, amen. How do we build to last? We build on Jesus' words by listening to them and then acting on them. Act is Jesus' next verbal. The next verbal is to act. He says, act on his instructions. By the way, I I also really like Luke, uh, the comment he records on this. Luke records a a different time, another time, when Jesus gave this same ethic, he gave this same general speech. And in Luke's uh, speech, Jesus says this, Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? We need to act on Jesus' words, and the Lord's instructions are not hidden. They're not secret. He's not the Easter bunny hiding his will under bushes somewhere, saying, warmer, colder. Look, just look at this sermon we've just studied. We hear Jesus' instructions just with the Beatitudes. Very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what God desires. Here's what you do. You call me Lord, Lord, you don't do what I say. Well, here's what you're supposed to do. Have poverty of spirit. That means I recognize my need. Mourning, blessed are those who mourn, right? Well, that means mourning my sin, gentleness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, pureness of heart. That means a single-minded devotion, peacemaking, being persecuted because of Jesus. That's what we need to act on. And look at the rest of the sermon. Looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, just the Beatitudes, we could probably add at least five more ethical commands that are very clear from Jesus. He commands marital fidelity, love even toward enemies, discernment without judgment. That's tough. Forgiveness, and he commands sharing the gospel of Jesus' kingdom, which is entered by God's grace through faith. Those are the actions God desires His people to practice. We are to listen to those words and then do them. So think, think. If we want to prosper through recessions, both physical and spiritual, we need to build on this rock. So think about this. Where are you weak? I know. Amazing Christians like you are exemplary in every one of those categories, of course. You keep all of those commands perfectly. But just in case you might be slightly less strong in one area, which is it? Where are you weak? Poverty of spirit? Mourning sin? Gentleness? Peacemaking? Being persecuted because of Jesus, not because of you? Sharing the gospel of Jesus' kingdom entered by God's grace through faith? Be honest with yourself, folks. We must own our weaknesses so we can truly partner with God in strengthening them. Here's how a friend put it to me in a a note recently. A friend wrote me and said, Wayne, since we started this study, I have been meditating on the Beatitudes as characteristics of my behavior, especially on Jesus' commands about judging, loving our enemies, and loving others as ourselves. As much as I want to and as hard as I try, I can't do it. It's beyond my abilities. I find that I must look to the Spirit to provide the will and the way. Otherwise, I may look kind of good trying, but it's not real. Close quote. So true. You know what the great news is? The great news is that God's Spirit leads us directly to act on Jesus' words when we yield to God. He does. And that changes everything. Look, look at the outcome. Verse 25. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Notice that listening and acting on Jesus' words does not eliminate storms. Storms are always coming. You are either in a battle of some kind, you have just emerged from a difficult fight, or one is coming for you on the horizon. That is the truth of life, this side of heaven. As Jesus referenced earlier in chapter 7, this is a broken world where even the best work is hampered by thorns and thistles. He is not saying that these don't grow in Christians' lives, quite the opposite, in fact. It is not that we're somehow exempt from the storms that plague all the rest of this marred, tilted, swiftly rolling planet. Jesus does not in any way say his follower is exempt from storms. He does declare that his follower builds to last. Even in the storm, the person who is built on Jesus' word prospers. For example, the Porthcall Lighthouse in South Wales. It's a really beautiful place. It gets hammered by Atlantic storms. And yet the place still stands strong every time. Here's just one example. Take a look. Good gracious. That, that was well over a 100-foot high wave and spume there. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Porth Cole Lighthouse. Now, let me show you what it looks like at high tide in a calm sea. And you can tell that those were big waves in that storm, right? And yet, that lighthouse stands. And I will testify to you the same thing has been true in my life. I have been washed over many, many times, but I stand strong, and I am still shining, not because of anything in me, but because Jesus is my foundational rock. All God's people said? Now, on the right side of our notes, we examine the opposite story, the opposite side of Jesus' picture. He says, lack of action leaves one out on the sand, verse 26, verse 26 and 27. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was great. The key word here is poieo. Poieo, what we translate, act. It's a fancy word that really is important, so you get to say it today. On the count of three, you get to say pollo. One, two, three. Poieo, Very good. Poieo began as a term for, uh, it's a fairly old term in Greek, it began as a term for what God does, uh, things, things that God makes. It especially indicated God's commitment to, to always be doing good. But later, a couple of hundred years before Jesus gave this speech, poieo, it, it changed. It became used as a term for what people are called to do by God. It's an imitation term. Pe- people heard evidence of, of God's good works and they were inspired to be busy about God's good works themselves in imitation. In fact, a lot of sources use poyeo as a child-rearing term. Look, in classical thought, I don't know if you know this, in classical thought, a person's actions were considered inspired by what kind of father he had. The, the parenting experts of the second century, and yes, there were parenting experts. There have been parenting experts in every century. Occasionally, they're even right. Um, the parenting experts of the second century, that said they said this, by a person's actions, you can tell whose child he is and what he has heard from his father, all right? I'm not trying to get lost in the weeds here. That detail is really important to understand what Jesus is saying. Pueyo means that you and I are called to do the clear and evident commands of our father. God's good works are heard, they're revealed through nature and scripture and Jesus, God the Son. We can do what God wants done because of what God has already done. He is the Father to those who trust in Him so we can imitate Him. That's why Jesus taught His disciples to pray like this. Look up here, read it with me. Matthew chapter 6, verse nine. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our, f- wait a minute, wait a minute. I have very little voice. I'm a bearer of very little brain. I have very little voice. And I am by far the loudest one here read. That is unacceptable, all right? Shall we try this again? You have the opportunity to read the very words of God. And you have a voice, you pansies. All right. Shall we, re- shall we read together? Matthew 6, verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Our Father. How cool is that? We are supposed to be distinguishable from all the rest because we follow him. He's our Father. What we do, our poyeo, our actions, they show who our daddy is. If a believer in Jesus doesn't follow, he's playing the fool. If he doesn't imitate the works of Jesus, the things that are commanded and exemplified by Christ, then that Christian has set himself up for a mighty fall. Now, of course, sometimes Christians know what to do, but we're just afraid to act. We we build on sand for this reason. Things look so dark and ugly around us, we get paralyzed into inaction. That was the case um, in this country's intelligence service back in the mid-1970s. In the late 60s and uh, early 1970s, So many CIA assets had been exposed and killed in Moscow that U.S. leaders had pretty much just given up any hope of trying to fight for freedom uh, in the Cold War. But all that changed in 1976 when this guy, Tony Mendez, arrived with his wife to work at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Tony completely changed the game. Tony actually was an artist, He wasn't really trained as a spy. He was an artist. He was an expert in disguises and human behavior. But here's what he did. He developed a powerful new method for covert ops that that became known in the CIA. It's known to this day as the Moscow Rules. The Moscow rules. The Moscow rules were were all about making sure that you were bold and wise at the same time. Let me just give you you a couple little examples. He developed a plan where every single person in the U.S. Embassy had to be trained to be able to be on the street dressed in disguise as a, a businessman, a male businessman, male or female, and in 45 seconds with no cover They had to be able to change in 45 seconds into a disguise of an old babushka, an old grandmother, and they did it. Here's here's one of my favorite stories about Tony. He one time smuggled a CIA asset, who was a high-ranking Russian official, out of the U.S. Embassy disguised as an Afghan hound. (laughs) A lot of times in very, very cold climates, they'll put, you know, clothes on the dogs, which in Texas is just horrible to do. Anyway, um, sorry, it's wonderful that you do that. <laughs> Poor dogs. Anyway, they, and so they, they had clothes on this, on this guy, and they, had, and they walked past two KGB agents that they knew for sure were KGB agents who, who looked at him and said, good boy. That's how good he was. Actually, a lot of us know, you may have, like Tony Mendez, I know that name. If you know it, here's why. He was the one who thought up the famous extraction plan from the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It was made famous in the movie Argo, right? My favorite factoid about Argo. True story about the Argo mission, you ready? This appeared in the New Yorker magazine a number of years ago. Um, Studio Six, that was the phony Hollywood production company that was at the core of the Argo plan, the CIA plan. Studio Six proved so convincing that even weeks after the rescue was complete and the office had folded, 26 scripts were delivered to its address, including one from Steven Spielberg. Isn't that amazing? Because of Tony Mendez's leadership, the Cold War in Moscow began to swing the way of freedom. Agents imitated him; they lived by his Moscow rules. Coup after coup, they pulled off. It helped the U.S. stop Soviet aggression. I think the best comment I've ever read was Sam Walker wrote um, after uh, after Mr. Mendez passed away not long ago. He said, "In the end, bullets didn't win the Cold War; disguises did." But, of course, we're all asking in our uh, uh, Ben Affleck Argo imitation, what happened to the ones who didn't work by the Moscow rules, right? What happened to the ones who kept doing things the same way they always had? Great question, Ben. Sadly, the outcomes were not good. The agents who didn't live by the Moscow rules ended up in trouble, sometimes with a star in the one place where no one wants one, on the memorial wall at Langley. Without any exaggeration, Jesus is telling us that the same kind of danger awaits a Christian who does not poyeo, who doesn't live according to Jesus' rules. The outcome of inaction or building on anything other than the Messiah is collapse. The worst part, let me let me tell you a little bit about what I do for a living. The worst part of being a pastor. By far the worst. In fact, nothing else is anywhere even close to this. The worst part is having to walk with so many people through their shattered lives. And I'm not talking about the pains that are brought on by nature or non-Christians or, or even other Christians or Satan. Those scenarios are rough, sure, but, they, but they're not the worst. The worst are the ones who flat out knew what God said to do and refused to yield. So, sometimes this is somebody who's actively shaking their fist at God. I'm going to do it my way. A lot of times, especially with fairly well-educated, grown-up Christians, a lot of times they, they rationalize instead. They kind of play around and like to lie to themselves and pretend like they're obeying Jesus' word, living on the rock, but they really aren't, and, and, and sometimes this is increasing in this day and age. They'll even play games with and, and twist the scripture and, and come up with weird philosophic foundations that can kind of change the meaning to make it say what they want it to say, but the result is always the same. Great is the fall. Many of us have experienced the pain when storms come in our lives, right? I have. And it is horrible to recognize that we could have prospered through that storm. We could have survived that storm intact if only we hadn't refused to Pueo. We saw a video of a lighthouse that stood strong through a massive storm, right? Well, here's the opposite. Take a look at this. Whoa. Partially constructed building collapsed as Hurricane Michael lashed Florida's Gulf Coast. Key phrase there is partially constructed Watch it in slow motion. Boom. Great was its fall. It was like a Christian who only partially obeys. In each case, the person has to rebuild. Rebuilding is such a painful process. It's beautiful, but it's painful, right? Anybody here, besides me, I have, anybody had to rebuild your life or parts of your life at some point? You ever had to rebuild? Raise your hands. Yeah, okay. It's tough. Here's the good news. The good news is that the Holy Spirit is with every single believer in Jesus, even when we have behaved like idiots. And it is never, it is never too late to start acting, to start poie on Jesus' words. Let me put it this way. In God's grace, it is never too late to begin building to last. All God's people said? Now, that's not to suggest there aren't any consequences. Refusing God will always bring consequences. And by the way, it's not only this life that is affected. It, it, one of the most foolish churches ever in history was the church at Corinth. Um, let, let me just give you a very short summary of Corinth, and this is by no means exhaustive. They they ignored or changed Jesus' words on fornication, forgiveness, church leadership, and loving each other. Fairly amazing list. They just did what they wanted and totally ignored God. They were a mess here's what God said to them through their apostle, the apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please Him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. Dear Christians, that is our calling to kindly, lovingly, and firmly persuade our brethren to build on the rock of Scripture. It matters for this life, but it matters forever. It matters for eternal rewards to come. Now, let's finish Matthew 7 text. When Jesus had finished the sermon, when he dropped the mic after that collapse comment, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Jesus is the authority. You either accept Jesus' authority or you don't build to last. That's it. Those are your choices. You accept Jesus' authority or you don't build to last. Even the crowds. He's not speaking to the crowds. He's talking to his disciples. But the crowds who were overhearing this conversation, they recognized that he is authority. And that authority comes from his person as Messiah. Look how D.A. Carson summarized this. He said, the central point, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, is this. Jesus' entire approach in the Sermon on the Mount is not only ethical, it is messianic. He's not an ordinary prophet who says, Thus says the Lord. Rather, he speaks in the first person, claims that his teaching fulfills the Old Testament, that he determines who enters the messianic kingdom. As divine judge, he pronounces banishment. The true heirs of the kingdom will be persecuted for their allegiance to him, and that he alone fully knows the will of his Father. Close quote. It is so tragically comic To listen to what people think about authority. That is authority. Jesus is the authority. But that's not how we think. I'm not picking on them. In fact, I really admire and love these kids. But I grabbed a a number of weeks ago, I grabbed a gaggle of, uh, of youth together, a bunch of students, and I asked them this question. I said, hey, kids, what do you think of when I say this phrase, ultimate authority? These were the answers I got. I just wrote them down. The president, God, the U.S. Supreme Court. I got that one twice. Genes, four times, genetic code or genes, ultimate authority. And then one girl said, my mother. And the girl next to her said, her mother, (laughs) which was awesome. Now, isn't it interesting that the genetic code received the most responses? And, And that seems in keeping with what most people would say. You and I have been taught that our genes are the ultimate determinative authority in life. But not only is that theologically absurd, it's not even biologically correct. Listen to this. Ken Richardson, he's a science professor at the Open University in Britain, a science philosopher. And he recently wrote this in the journal Nautilus, fascinating article, with the great headline, The End of the Gene as We Know It. Um, He said this, We've all seen the stark headlines, Being Rich and Successful is in Your DNA. A new genetic test could help determine children's success. Our fortune-telling genes make us, and so on. The problem is many of these headlines are not discussing real genes at all, but a crude statistical model of them involving dozens of unlikely assumptions. Now, slowly but surely, that whole conceptual model of the gene is being challenged. Scientists now understand that the information in the DNA code can only serve as a template for a protein. It cannot possibly serve as instructions for the more complex complex task of putting the proteins together into a fully functioning being, no more than the characters on a typewriter can produce a story. Some have likened the process to an orchestra without a conductor. It's most stunningly displayed in early development. Within hours, the fertilized egg becomes a ball of identical cells, all with the same genome, of course, but those cells are already talking to each other with storms of chemical signals. The cells all with the same genes, multiply into hundreds of starkly different types, moving in glorious ballet to find just the right places at the right times that could not have been specified in fixed linear strings of DNA. As the British biologist Dennis Noble insists in an interview with the writer Susan Mazer, the modern synthesis had got causality and biology all wrong. DNA on its own does absolutely nothing until activated by the rest of the system, close quote. Now, in his book, Dr. Richardson goes on to show that 20th century biologists who taught that genes are determinative, they even knew better. Many of them knew that genes were not the authority in life. They knew that that unseen conductor actually controls things. So why do you think our, our forefathers in modern biology, why do you think they would have facilitated such a... Such a pretense. Richardson explains, look at this. The facts were ignored for reasons, as it turned out, that have more to do with ideology than biology. Close quote. Dr. Richardson is not a Christian, okay? But even he recognizes the major motivations behind pushing genes as the determinative issue of life were twofold. They had two major motivations, a desire to pursue eugenics and a desire to do away with God. In other words, a desire to be God and then a desire to do away with God. But God has an amazing capacity to refuse being put away. He is the authority, folks. Just think about what Dr. Richardson described about that fertilized and implanted egg. He called it a mysterious symphony with no conductor. But those who listen, those who aku'o They learn the truth. Read with me. Psalm uh, 139, verse 13 and 14. You take the underlined text. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. Thank you. We hear that now. And we think about those 20th century biologists who refuse to be honest. They refuse to be honest just because they did not want to acknowledge God. We look at that and we become very smug and we immediately think, well, <laughs> thank goodness we're not like those old scientists. Right? <laughs> uh, we don't act like that. I mean, we don't, we don't ever fight to fit the facts into our own personal desires. Right? Well, oh, but we do. I want you to look one more time at our short summary of Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Think, think again. Have you ever tried to override his authority in any of these areas? Just ask yourself, answer the question, where have I fought Jesus' authority in this, in this list? Is it in poverty of spirit? I don't need to be poor in spirit. I'm, I'm brilliant. I'm accomplished. I'm a very disciplined Christian. Do you fight God on morning sin? <laughs> Why do you call it sin? Everybody does. Everybody else does. It's legal. I'm not going to mourn that sin. You know, my grandpa used to call statements like that late summer comments. He would say, well, that's a late summer comment, and we'd always step into it. Wait, why do you call that a late summer comment? Because there's a fall coming. (laughs) What about gentleness? Lord, I can't be gentle. I can't be gentle. Do you know it's a jungle out there? My opponents are all, they're fighting with fire. I can't be gentle, right? Go through that whole list. Honestly ask where you might have turned to some other ethic, some other authority than Jesus' word. And please be honest. And be honest with me as well. I'm going to pick a few of these ethical actions. I'm going to pick three with which I struggle. I'd like you to raise your hand if you are weaker in the area I named. If you have a tendency to buck Jesus' authority in these three, raise your hand. I'd like to know who else is like me. Being merciful. Anybody else struggle with that? Thank you. I'm glad you raised your hand because I was, yeah, you needed to. I'm merciful. That's why I said that, yeah. (laughs) Um, Loving even enemies. Sharing the gospel of Jesus' kingdom, which is entered by grace through faith. Okay. The fact that so many raise their hands tells me that um, much like the 20th century biologists, we need a come-to-Jesus moment. Wouldn't you agree? So let's take it. Pray with me. (coughs) Father, I pray for myself, and I pray for my brothers and sisters. We need to come to Jesus every day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, and remember that blessed are the poor in spirit. We need you. We need to listen. We need to act on your word. (laughs) Everybody here wants to be storm-proof, recession-proof, but there's only one way that happens, and that is in acting on your words. So, Father, we pray that we will, that we will act on your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, folks, all winter, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I have enjoyed every minute of growing with you in this study. Here at the end, I want us to step back and just take a real short, big-picture overview. Sermon on the Mount, okay? It started with an introduction about holiness. And why don't we just hold those for just a minute, guys? Just hold the plates for just a second. I want them to pay attention here. Thank you. Uh, We'll have time in just a minute. Uh, we had a setting, the nine Beatitudes, the ones we went through on our list of ethics, right? And then the, the famous salt and light metaphors. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Then we ran into the thesis in chapter 5. Greater righteousness is required of Jesus' followers. Greater even than the scribes and Pharisees. And then we had an antithetical section where Jesus did this awesome contrast. He had he had six Pharisaical false versions of Moses' law and then six real depictions of it, and then the thesis summary, which was perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that perfection is unattainable for human beings. That call to be perfect does one thing. It shows us our desperate need for Messiah Jesus. It is only through faith in His death and His resurrection that our sins are forgiven, that they are paid for, and we are made holy. If you have never trusted Jesus, please come talk with me afterwards, and let's discuss this together. Now, here's the rest of the sermon. The sermon goes on, chapter six is the body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' kingdom ethic. He had, uh, he had true or false, three examples of true religion versus hypo, hypo, hypocritical religion, uh, ethical fidelity, three awesome metaphors for that. Then he talked about life-changing trust, trust in him, how trust is built, and then judgment versus discernment. It's really fascinating. Of all the messages that we had in that series, I got the most mail about that one. Uh, really beautiful, wonderful mail, just about people really growing in that one. Persistence was next, and then the summary of the body of the message was the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. I'm kidding. That is not the golden rule. The golden rule, that is not true at all. The golden rule is do it to others as you would have them do to you. Then we get to chapter 7. So we had the introductions about holiness. The thesis, you need greater righteousness. You only find that through trusting Jesus. The body is his ethic, then the application, and it's two responses. He showed us two roads, two kinds of teachers, two claims, and then what we study today, two houses, the one built on the rock, the one built on the sand. The conclusion is Jesus speaks with authority. And I want to thank you for responding to that authority, church. It, it really has been a joy to study this with you.